joining us on the show this evening for our first segment to discuss his article in the new issue of The Independent is Nicholas Powers. Nick is a professor of African-American literature at SUNY Old Westbury out on Long Island and a longtime contributing writer for the Indy. He has the kickoff article in the new issue of the paper titled Why We Explode. Nick, thank you for joining us on the show tonight. Well, thanks for having me, John. Hope you guys can hear me clearly. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We hear, hear you uh, loud and clear. Uh, so these uh, the George Floyd protests of the past uh, three weeks, I think, have taken almost everybody by surprise by the, the magnitude of the protests in terms of number of people participating, uh, the towns and cities around the country uh, uh, day after day where people are, are coming out and, and saying Black Lives Matter. In your in your article, you describe the the pain uh, that black people in this country experience as a, a sea of gasoline, and George Floyd's death as the lit match that was tossed into that sea of gasoline. Do you want to uh, elaborate on that and 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 how you feel that's fueling these protests? George Floyd's brutal murder on the video. It ignited a, a rage that constantly pools and is added to inside the bodies of people of color in general and black people in particular. And even if you're a person of color and you were never harassed by the police or uh, never were intimidated or stopped and frisked or put in jail over a stupid fine like, say, I was, um, there is every single day a kind of constant alarm that not all, but most of us, many of us, have in the back of our heads. It's like a racial radar. And you're always kind of navigating the world around you and trying to avoid um, embarrassing yourself racially or being embarrassed racially or um, finding yourself in a situation where a humorous conversation could take a turn and be at your expense or a feeling that you have to prove yourself twice as hard because there's more suspicion about you, say, at work. Or if you're on a date, not knowing if you're being fetishized or, um, or if you're being um, dismissed because of your color or your hair texture. Um, so racism kind of saturates in very small and some ways that oftentimes are we feel them, but we kind of just have to live through them because you still have to make your, your way to the, to the end of the day. You still have to you know, get your laundry done and get your work done and take care of your kids and meet your family. And so a lot of us have to kind of bury those small, really kind of tiny uh, moments of racism in our bodies. And then on top of that, there is oftentimes the stop and frisking, although that's been uh, thankfully kind of uh, declined now. But the stop and frisking, or if you are getting stopped by the cops, afraid that you'll be insulted or that if not lethal force, you know, uh, physical force will be used. Um, or if you're being stopped just a suspicion, even if the cop is totally professional and polite, are you being stopped only because you're being profiled? And so all of this just builds and builds and builds inside of the body. And most people carry it around beneath the conscious waterline. It's just a weight that you feel inside of you. And it's this kind of sea of gasoline. And so when we see the, the brutal murder of George Floyd on 
on our cell phones or on the TV screen at a restaurant or all the newspapers, it, it falls like a lit match and it, 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 it incinerates, it ignites a lot of that repressed anger that people have inside of them. And then on top of that, that when that lit match falls in, you know, you see the face of George Floyd, but then you also see Tamir Rice. You also see, you know, Sandra Bland. You also see Eric Gardner. You also see Trayvon Martin. And then, you know, you see the Scottsboro boys and maybe lynching photos. And then beyond that, you may hear those, you may remember the stories in your own family, informal, intimate family history that's not recorded in the book, but it's passed down from one generation to another from mouth to ear over, you know, breakfast or maybe on the porch or on the stoop. And so we hear these stories and they're passed down to us. And so that lit match illuminates that whole kind of inner world of uh, the diasporic history of uh, trauma created by white racism. So that that is one of the elements that exploded. Um, but then the other major theme of the piece is that sometimes people have become so numb to it, like the, the, they've created such a kind of layer of scar tissue um, over their their pain that they almost can't even feel angry. Um, or if they do, it's, it's, it's a very cynical anger that is hopeless, uh, resigned. And so sometimes I, I talk to people who are standing on the corner, and they'll talk, and I'll hear them curse about uh, the, the death of George Floyd, um, but they won't go to the protest because they've seen this over and over and over again, and they haven't seen any real change. And so rather than become vulnerable, uh, they rather just shut down. And so there's two reactions happening. You know, there's the reaction of those who still are hopeful enough to feel rage. And then there's the reaction of those who are too cynical um, to feel rage. And, and do you feel like there's uh, something different happening this time? And obviously there's been many protests over uh, police violence and police killings uh, over the years. Uh, um, does, does this feel different in some way? And, and if so, why do you feel that way? Well, one thing that's different is that my white gentrifying neighbors are on the rooftop chanting Black Lives Matters. And there was a there was a rubble of a church that had been, you know, fallen and collapsed years ago. It was just rubble. And then in the past two years, new condos came in. And on that condo when it was just being constructed, someone spray painted death to gentrifiers. Uh, which I thought was was crude, but I, I just I, I got the sentiment that people did not want gentrifiers in their neighborhood raising the rent and et cetera. And then people started, you know, getting the condos or the apartments in the new building. Uh, mostly white, but not all. Some were middle-class black and, like, you know, with some was mixed. But they kind of kept to themselves. And recently, I've actually seen some of them at the protest, and they have chalked up the sidewalk, and they have posted signs, and they go on the roof and they're saying, Black Lives Matter. So some of the older neighbors are looking at the new neighbors, and they're kind of confused. They're like, well, what do we make of white gentrifiers now passionately saying Black Lives Matter. So it's a bit of a kind of odd situation. But when one pulls the lens back a little bit, and when I went to a Black Trans Lives Matters rally in March that happened um, this past Sunday, one thing I noticed was that what's different now is that an immense amount of white progressives who are not necessarily attached to any specific organization, 
have come out like a tidal wave. And so one has to ask, why now? And I would say there's a few things. One, it's been building since, I would say, Sean Bell, that the images of police brutality have become more ubiquitous because of cell phones. So the farther reach of the cell phone and the more power of social media, that second, Occupy Wall Street has also politicized a generation of white progressives who are making, using democratic uh, appeals uh, to fight against inequality, and they were beaten out of those tent cities by the police. So they've been brutalized by the police. And finally, we have the quarantine, which has created this huge amount of emotional pressure of people being locked in their homes. And so when you add all of this up and shake it and stir it, um, you really have a stick of social dynamite. Mm. And uh, uh, I guess last question, uh, time, time's running out for us here. Um, are, are, are you hopeful? You you have a, a two-year-old son. That, do you think he might uh, come of age in a world where uh, racism is, if not go- uh, gone, uh, substantially uh, less of a, a force in our lives? I think what happens in the next two, three years is really going to determine that because – if, if the racism that has split white America into um, a white America that sees itself as part of a kind of collective multiracial nation and another part which does, sees itself as an embattled uh, majority that is possibly going to become a minority and sees itself and its taxes and its money being siphoned off and given to the undeserving poor like welfare queens, then – you know, we, we have that racism that split white America. Um, and if we have what seems to be in the street, a turning point of progressive white youth, then that racist appeal, mostly done by Republicans, uh, saying that, you know, don't vote for social programs because all those social programs are really just going to benefit people who don't look like you and they're going to disempower you. That racist appeal won't work anymore. And if that doesn't work, then you'll see the possibility of the United States leapfrogging and finally getting getting to a place where Denmark, Norway, um, Netherlands, France, Germany, most you know, most of the European countries already are, which is you have a strong you know social safety net, strong welfare net, so that people don't starve, they have access to free college, Medicaid, Medicare for all. And if you have that, then you have the basis for release, relieving some of the class tension. Um, and class tension is one of the things, not the only, but it's one right. of the things that fuels racism. Right. Yeah, can't, I guess we'll, we'll see in these, uh, yes, in these coming years where the, the United States can finally be a place where uh, the abundance is uh, shared uh, for all, uh, regardless of uh, race or uh, sex or gender or any other thing that uh, eluded us for 400 years, but uh, maybe maybe this moment is a, a, a breakthrough moment. So, you know, we're, uh, re- reading your article and, and the conversation we were having uh, earlier in the show uh, made me think back to, uh, back to 2007 when you wrote extensively for The Independent about uh, the Sean Bell case and the aftermath of, of the three cops who uh, pumped uh, 50 bullets into his body, being found not guilty uh, by a judge. 
Can you talk about then and now and how far, while there's much still to be resolved, how far things have come both in this city and in this country since you were, I mean, you were very much present at that time. When the news of Sean Bell's murder came out, there's always something excessive that ignites the rage of the people. And one of the things that was excessive was exactly as you said, the 50 bullets. So it was a hail of 50 bullets. Not all of them hit Sean Bell, but enough that tore up his neck and his body. And then obviously his two friends um, also were struck by bullets. And, and people counted in the protest marches to 50. And that was a, both a, an incredibly unifying chance that was rhythmic, that was powerful, that was clear, that was easy. But it was also very long. When he counted to 50 and he thought each number was a bullet, it solidified in the minds of all of those who were marching that, wow, this is, that they were so excessive. And then, so that became a symbol of the excessive nature of the NYPD, or at least some sections of the NYPD and their excessive violence um, and quick turn to violence and how it robbed this young man of his life, especially the night before he was going to get married. So those were the two kind of excessive things about the Sean Bell um, murder that, that struck the imagination of, I would say, black and Latino New York. And the reason I say that is when I went to his funeral, um, you know, I went there at first, you know, as a reporter and, that, you know, I had my notebook and, you know, the church, but the, the church line was all people of color. And on the other side, the media that did show up was mostly white media. And I just felt as a man of color, uh, you know, my family's New Yorkian and born and raised in the city, and I just put my notebook away, and I joined the line. And I walked in, and it was a very deep sense of, of kind of sobriety and somberness. And I approached the casket. And I saw his face, and it was, you know, it was the face of a really handsome young man. And it's, it's as if the body was shocked at how full of life it was and how quickly it was taken away. And um, and I felt like I was looking at the face of a 21st century Emmett So when I left, there was Al Sharpton, uh, Reverend Al Sharpton gave a, a eulogy. And you can hear his words from inside the church, but you can hear the angry chants of those of us outside. And the main thing was that it felt like those of us um, with the we people of color, mostly black and Latino, were alone in a city that was stopping and frisking us, that was putting us in jail, that was presuming us guilty, that was uh, shooting us 50 times. And this had been a tradition in New York. And we had known of these stories of police brutality, again, informally from our we, we have about 30 more seconds, Nick. Okay. So all that to say is that um, we felt like we were alone. And the main difference between then and now is that when you look at the speed of white progressives, we no longer feel alone, and we feel like we have a chance. Hmm. All right, we'll have to leave it there. Also, have uh, some good news from the, uh, that came out today. The police commissioner Dermot Shea announced that uh, he's disbanding his 600 uh, uh, police officer uh, plainclothes team, and it was plainclothes officers way back in 2006 who jumped Sean Bell outside that nightclub the night before he was supposed to get married. So it took a long time uh, even to get that small change, but it 
it, it, uh, it's happening. And uh, obviously we need a lot more. But thank you so much for coming on the show tonight, Nick, and, uh, and talking with us. Yeah, thank you. And have a great, great night. Okay. All right. So uh, that's it for tonight's show, the WBAI Evening News presented by The Independent.